start the week with Tim and Damo on the Unmade Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Damien Francis. And I'm Tim Burrows. Today, Elon Musk puts Twitter into limbo. Is the country running short of PRs? And Anthony Catalano makes more moves in real estate. So, Damo, I feel like I'm uh, uh, a little bit of practice having missed out on the the last three while I've been on my travels. And thank you to Phoebe for sitting in. Indeed, indeed. Welcome back to to Australia. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, How are you feeling? It's only been a a couple of days since you arrived. Um, I arrived back in Sydney on Sunday morning, having having had the usual 72 hours. No, that's not fair. 48 hours lack of sleep. So, So, that's the thing about travel now isn't it's just all a tiny bit harder we haven't we haven't yet got back to the pre-pandemic pandemic convenience so so yeah not to uh, you know be particularly critical of any particular element of it but yeah it's just not it's just not smooth yet is it but anyway we are where we are i'm perhaps in the right time zone um I, I slept for most of Sunday afternoon, woke up in time for the uh, for the Kyrgios final um, and did manage to go back to sleep again before recording this. So you never know. I might be, I might have de-jet-lagged myself thanks to Nick Kyrgios. Anyway, how was your weekend? Uh, weekend weekend was, was good despite, uh, God, I sound like a broken record despite the weather. You know, surprise, surprise, Sydney's weather was uh, relatively crap. Um, good weekend of sport, though, wasn't it? Uh, with uh, finally the F one actually took a, a back seat uh, to the tennis. Great doubles final, uh, seeing Aussies win that, which was fantastic. And like you said, that that Kyrgios match. And now I've got to be up front. I only made it halfway through. That uh, that was pretty epic. I got to the third set, and so did Nick. So did Nick. Yeah. <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> but fair. But fair. Did you actually manage to stay up for the whole thing? Look, I did, yes. Now, I had to be strategic at exactly what point to uh, start taking my uh, melatonin to uh, to start falling asleep. And I, I kind of made the call halfway through what proved to be the last set because it did feel that was going that way. Um, interesting piece in The Australian, actually, um, from um, James Madden making the point that Kyrgios's run probably comes at a perfect time for Tennis Australia as they begin to haggle over the next round of the rights, which are, of course, held by nine at the moment, although seven have said they're very keen because, of course, the retirement of Ash Barty had arguably drawn down the, the, the value of the local rights. But, um, you know, a, a kind of resurgent Kyrgios could, uh, could just play into the hands of Tennis Australia. Yeah, absolutely. A resurgent Kyrgios, and let's not for, forget Tom Lanovic as well in, in the women's who made a, a fairly valiant uh, run there. And the, the women's is so uh, mixed at the moment. You never know who's going to come out on top and who's going to make the final four even. It's uh, it's brilliant that we still have uh, some good talent in there as well. But like you say, I think good timing for Tennis uh, Australia, but also... I think everyone knows as well that Kyrgios, much like Bernard Tomic uh, a few years ago, has all the talent in the world, does blow hot and cold a bit. So it'll be really interesting to see uh, as well whether the, this run continues towards the, the US Open. But like you say, good timing now for, for those negotiations. Well, let's, uh, let's make a start on the week's topics. Where do we start? 
Is there anywhere else to start, Tim, than, than Twitter, this car crash of a story that, that just continues to develop because finally uh, Elon Musk has put the brakes on. The, the rumors were going around for such a long time. There was some very strong opinion in the media about the fact that he was going to do this. How, how did we get here, Tim? We have to go right back to, I think it was April, if I remember rightly, that it began to look that after a lot of flirting and hints, perhaps Elon Musk was serious about buying Twitter, um, having you know made most of his money in uh, Tesla. Um, he lobbed that infamous bid at uh, $54.20 with the nod towards the four twenty, with uh, with in turn, his nod towards the weed culture, of which he's so uh, so fond. Um, there was a bunch of speculation at the time that he was overpaying, but since then the world has changed quite a lot, including uh, tech valuations in particular. So the company is arguably worth a lot less than the, if you convert it to Australian doctor, um, if you convert it to Australian dollars, it was um, a little bit more than sixty billion dollars he was committing to pay um maybe worth a bit less than half or or even a third of that um and the the key point in that is the word committed so since then as the price has gone down the speculation has grown that he'd be desperate to find a way out and of course he's talked a lot about bots on the platform but the point was they always existed and that that maybe wasn't um you know, wasn't wasn't going to be enough for an excuse. So, um, so it, it, each of these stages has been predictable, but nonetheless, this this is the weekend where it has now come about that it looks like certainly at this price, Elon Musk is not going to be turning up to buy Twitter. So they're going to be heading to court, and it strikes me that even if a judge suggests that Elon Musk's has to go through with the purchase of Twitter. It's very hard to force someone to still commit and purchase that company. And also you would say almost disastrous on the other side as well if they do go through with it, not wanting to do it and with no intention of you know putting that company in a good position. So what, what do you expect will happen next? Where do you go to from here? Hey, look, I'm... Um, Shout out not just to the Pivot podcast, which is the one that Cara Swisher does with Scott Galloway, but also his own Prof G podcast. He's had some really great business guests on talking about the where now and the the, the legalities. Because yeah, how do you how do you make somebody show up with sixty billion dollars just because they've signed a bit of paper? Um, and the, the you know the, the the truth of the matter is is some of it will be a negotiation, so perhaps he'll try and come back to the table and do the deal at a lower price. And if it's still a higher price than you know the market thinks Twitter's worth, then you might see the Twitter board capitulating on that. Um, if he walks away altogether, then they don't have much option but to sue. And then, of course, we see a massive test case that drags on for years and... You know, it's 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 probably about um, 
the difference in the valuation of the company now versus when he signed up and committed to a particular number. Um, what does seem sort of a bit of a red herring that was there were headlines around that there was a $1 billion break clause. Um, but that would be when people had basically good reasons that were beyond their control and regretting agreeing to pay just because the value's gone down doesn't seem like a good reason. So so it seems like probably it'll go to court, but an awful lot will depend on the appetite of the board of Twitter on how willing um, they are to actually go through that and be distracted for a year or two. Um, so, you know, we may we may yet see him coming back and doing the deal at a lower price, but I guess his problem then is the valuation of his source of his wealth, which is Tesla. Uh, you, you, you see investors in Tesla not be particular fans of that, and if they start selling down, then he, he becomes the poorer for it. So, um, so, yeah, I think we can look forward to messiness ahead. Coming up next, are we having a PR shortage? Unmade. So the Australian Financial Review is reporting today that the PR Institute of Australia is lobbying the government to make it easier to do overseas recruitment. Um, what exactly are they pushing for, Damo? Well, essentially, Tim, they're pushing for the uh, ability to hire more people from global markets. Uh, it's a, a situation that we've seen not just in the PR industry, but in the media and marketing industry in general for for a while now, since uh, essentially things started calming down in the pandemic, uh, where business started booming for creative agencies, media buyers, the PR industry uh, as well. And Lo and behold, there there became a significant talent shortage uh, across all of them, which led to then a number of um, you know agencies having to pay over the odds uh, to secure the talent that they needed. And this wasn't just at the higher levels, but uh, this was uh, across the board as well. So, what's happened here is the the Public Relations Institute of uh, Australia, which uh, represents the the PR and comms uh, industry locally. They want uh, the the National Skills Commission to place professional communicators on uh, the longer-term strategic skills list, uh, which will open up pathways to permanent residency for migrants who uh, are attracted here to, to join the, the local PR industry, uh, essentially. Yeah, which I suppose is worth, um, uh, you know, making the point that the, the rules changed a little while before the pandemic because it used to be that there was a route through the old 457 visa which is what brought me into the country where you 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 so long as you kept your nose clean you could eventually have a route to to full citizenship which is 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 the route that i came um and you know there there was criticism when the rules changed that you wouldn't get the very best people if they knew it wasn't you know, a, a new life they could make. It was it was just a temporary thing. Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, 2017 that that happened. So, you know, a couple of years before uh, the pandemic set in, th- three years or so before the, the pandemic kind of truly uh, set in. But uh, the president of, of, of PRIA, uh, Shane Allison, he's uh, 
trying to get uh, the, the government to to improve things on, on that front. He, he's mentioned uh, the immigration minister Andrew Giles once he's a, a bit more settled uh, in, in the role. Hopefully. Um, untangling the, the visa system uh, that we have now and um, making it a bit simpler for, for uh, the, the agencies to attract that international uh, talent. But look, essentially they're, they're pushing off the fact that, uh, that the uh, National Skills Commission Internet Vacancy uh, su- suggested that there's 82% increase in job vacancies for PR uh, between Jan 2020 and April 2022. That's uh, the numbers that uh, Miranda Rords reported in the uh, AFR story that's reported this. Uh, so huge amounts of job vacancies, particularly in PR. Again, I, I'd suggest it's probably similar across the, the media marketing industry uh, as a whole. Um, but clearly, uh, there, there's a lot that needs to be done here. It's extremely hard to, to hire at the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, that's obviously going to make, make it a lot harder for the PR industry to, to really push forward and, and, and grow. But uh, interesting quotes from Alison as well in that, that story. You know, in particular, uh, he said, uh, the government didn't step up during the pandemic by giving people certainty and confidence in being able to, to stay in Australia. And he, he sort of went relatively hard on uh, the Morrison government's uh, lack of, of initiative during that time. But, uh, look, you know, they've clearly got to get uh, a lot more talent into into agencies and looking overseas seems to be the, the best way of doing that, uh, according to Priya. Well, let me challenge you on that point a bit because, sure, you know, you, you, you absolutely want to look into other markets as well. I wonder, though, is the communications industry generally, so not just PR, but I do include PR in it, you know, so creative agencies, media agencies, is it doing enough to grow its own talent as well? You know, why is it that um, the industry has to look offshore so much for its talent? You know, should there just be more investment at an earlier stage in training people Um to to be your next generation of leaders rather than simply, you know, doing the arguably easier thing of, you know, hiring talent from somewhere else when you have a gap. Yeah, look, I think you've got a really good point there. Um, you know, you, one could argue that the, the PR industry in general has sort of rested on the international talent for, for decades now. It always used to be that running joke in the industry that, you know, the, the, the PRs and the journos were largely from, from the UK. Um, I think look, if you take the, the stats that are shared, um, you know, as literally as possible, 82% vacancy, you know, is, is huge. So um, there's no amount of uh, training and, and uh, I guess, uh, upskilling in the short term that'll fix that. But long term, for sure, something, you know, more needs to be done for local talent. Okay, let me and, and let me just challenge one more on that 82% because of you're, course, you're in that mood, aren't you? Well, no, I mean, it, it, you know, hey, good for the PR industry, you know, it's it's putting its best foot forward. Mm. But that's an 82% increase mm. on an all time low in hiring, because mm. of course, the industry panicked and stopped hiring people. Um, and there is an argument if they'd stayed a bit calmer, then um, they 
could have carried on on certainly making local hires at that point. So, you know, so so let's remember it's not you know it's not that we're running at eighty two percent vacancies. Mm. It's they grew by eighty percent, eighty two percent, often all time low. Um, so yeah, so they're surely some of it is of their of of the industry's own doing. I think you'd be uh, remiss to argue that it it isn't. Um, and I certainly won't I won't argue that, that that it isn't. But you know, uh, look like, like I say, in terms of short term fixes, there isn't any other short term fix in in my mind anyway. Certainly not from um, uh, Shane Allison's mind. It seems um, because you know you, you you can't just sprout local talent uh, from thin air. But you know, to your point, I, I do agree. There needs to be a lot more uh, thought in how. You know, how you promote local talent, grow local talent, because this issue will keep popping up. Next, Anthony Catalano calls in some friends. Unmade. The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald is reporting that entrepreneur Anthony Catalano is bringing in some strategic investors for ACM. Uh, Tim, what do we know? Yeah, so this is an article uh, written by Zoe Samuels, who... Um, has reported fairly closely on um, Anthony Catalano over the last few years. So um, to catch people up, um, Anthony Catalano kind of came up within Fairfax, created a rival real estate publishing empire out of Melbourne before selling into um, back to Fairfax um, and creating the float of domain. Which arguably created the value that um, the then provided the energy for the the merger uh, with Nine to create the Nine as we as, as we see it today. More recently, he um, started sort of looking into the regional space, having bought Australian Community Media um, from the newly merged Nine. So that's you know broadly was newspapers and online local news. Um, inserted himself into Seven's attempted takeover or merger with with with, with regional TV operator Prime. Uh, in the end, got quite a good deal uh, when Seven did eventually have to buy Prime rather than do it through merger. Um, and it then sort of emerged that um, his his next play really is is certainly appears to be a real estate play in regional Australia. So that's through the website Real Estate View. Um, what we're seeing now, according to today's reporting, is the potential for Seven West Media, uh, proprietor Kerry Stokes, and potentially Wincourt, which is again, you know, strong regionally, um, very much aligned with Nine, uh, owned by Bruce Gordon. Um, and then potentially having small stakes in this future um, sort of media play. Now, I, I think what might be going on there is um, obviously they have their own regional reach, so it, it, it you know it helps them find it. And then the piece which I don't think, and obviously we always only have a few minutes to to, to prepare for this, but I, I don't think Zoe mentions this in her piece is um, still out there is that shell company 
of Prime. It's going to have to rename itself something else because Seven owns the rights to the name Prime. But um, but potentially this, the, you know, the, 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 this sort of body sort of floating on the ASX could yet be the vehicle for Anthony Catalano and his business partner Alex Wasteless to, um, to 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 you know to sort of run things through the ASX, which which might have some tax advantages as well because of the um, tax credits that I think would be sitting within the uh, within the company. Now, the other thing um, that's worth factoring in there is things are moving on Prime. So there was a sort of quiet little update just to the ASX recently that um, an organisation called Harvest Lane Asset Management, which I don't know an awful lot about, but asset management company, has actually sold some of its shares in Prime to somebody. So they, they, they've gone from 11.8% holding down to 8.8%. So somebody has just bought 3% now under the creep numbers. Um, you can do that every six months if you're an existing holder. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's Catalano and Wasteless coming a bit closer. And of course, Prime are still holders as well, which it, um, Seven rather are, are still holders as well, which would also kind of tie in with with, with, with where the complexities of, of that deal might be going. And then the other ASX announcement, which was made on July the 1st that nobody has talked about, is that ACM, so... Catalana's Australian Community Media agreed to buy something called Farm Buy, um, which um, they bought from a bigger ASX company called Future First Technologies. Now, effectively, that's real estate for the farming sector. And agriculture is a really interesting kind of underheralded sector, um, which we already see ACM having exposure to because, you know, they, they. they own things like the land, for instance. So um, that um, that is quite interesting, particularly the fact they only paid eight hundred thousand dollars for it. Um, so that that's probably worth keeping a little bit more of an eye on, and where they go on agriculture from here. Coming up next, more exits at the Judith Nielsen Institute. Unmade. So, Tim, while you were away, four directors departed the Judith Nielsen Institute, and now that you've come back, yet more exits have been announced. It's been a very high-profile time to uh, for the Judith Nielsen Institute. What do you make of this situation? Yeah, today's little upside, which we or update, which we read in the Sydney Morning Herald, um, uh, is two more advisors stepping down now from um, the Judith Nielsen Institute. Um, look, it's, it feels a little bit to me like history repeating itself. So, you know, what a wonderful thing. Judith Nielsen came along, you know, with her billions of dollars and decided she wanted to support journalism, not just in Australia, but around the world. So, so good for her, you know, philanthropy. Um, at its at its kind of purest, and that seemed to be the way it was set up initially. So, independent board, independent advisors. You know, I I, I guess there was a, a, a kind of a wider vision agreed, but other than that, um, you know, the 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 kind of people with a mainly with a journalism background, but business background as well, had the freedom to run the organisation as 
as they see fit. Um, and certainly initially, I think we were just we just at the stage where I was just beginning to pick up a few rumblings about it. So people would sort of mention, gosh, you know, looking at the, the first annual report, you know, the actual running costs are quite high relative to the actual amount of money that's been given out for for journalism locally or around the world. And again, rumblings that it seemed to be always the big players who got the money rather than, you know, independent journalists or journalism, etc. So so there was that little undertow anyway. But yeah, what it what it really reminds me of is I guess the the last time there was a really big philanthropy so hard a word to say at this time in the morning, philanthropy play in Australia in the media space was um, Graham Woods, who funded something called the Global Mail, which is now so long ago. I think you know many people have forgotten about it, but this was this utopian idea where what happens if you give journalists absolute freedom to write whatever they want and not have any particular deadlines and to design the website however they want and not have to promote things particularly or have a strategy for finding an audience and the answer was um you shred an awful lot of money in a short time and don't find any audiences and journalists rarely file which is a slightly loaded description but you know many of the things that went wrong at global mail before um graham woods pulled his money um the five-year journey ended in a couple if i remember rightly and in the end he 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 lent the money to the guardian to launch the guardian in australia instead um which was arguably a lot more effective use of, of of his money and a different form of philanthropy so it 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 does feel like the judith nielsen institute is resetting at the moment um much more towards her vision i presume she'll put in a uh, a, a board that just most much more closely sort of does you know effectively what she wants whatever that might be um so yeah what a you know what a what a pity you know hopefully she does go on funding journalism in some form but um but you know it from where you know where we said it, it it feels a a bit like another billionaire's plaything now. So we've we've been talking a lot about trust in in media and marketing, largely in marketing for a, a long amount of time, and obviously that's extraordinarily important in journalism as well. Uh, Tim, from your perspective, can the Judith Nielsen Institute regain trust in in the journalism sphere? It's a it's a pretty uh, i guess that's in itself is a pretty loaded question yeah look i i guess it's obviously in 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 the short term taken you know something of a kind of reputational hit in the end i suppose media organizations are pretty pragmatic when it comes to people with checkbooks now one of the great attractions of the JNI as it stood was that, you know, it, it, it certainly wasn't going to ask for any say over um, the sort of stories written. You know, the the one thing which probably distorted it a bit was, you know, where it was, a, I don't know, a correspondent being funded for it. And if I remember rightly, some of the nine newspapers, maybe some of their, their Asia reporting resource was funded out of JNI, if I remember rightly. Um, now, clearly... 
you're going to create a distortion of the agenda just by putting funds into one place um, because, you know, reporting will come out for the existence of those journalists that won't wear funds haven't been put in um you know and i i i think the the media companies held their noses and and lived with that um i guess the challenge will be if there are more agenda strings attached will there be some companies that that choose not to play in that space i'm you know these are commercial entities so i am a little bit you know, a little bit cynical on how principled they'll be. So, so I think once JNI comes through it, and if it still has the appetite to hand out money to journalism, then I suspect the queue will be as big as ever to take the money. And that is where we leave it for today. We would love to hear what you think of everything we've been talking about at letters at unmade.media. That's letters at unmade.media. And there'll be another edition of Unmade tomorrow, the Tuesday piece plus Wednesday. Get ready for another long-form edition of Unmade in your inbox. And if you haven't yet given us a rating in the podcast catcher of your choice, please do so. It helps other people to find us. Today's podcast was produced with the usual enthusiastic support of Abe's Audio. See you next time. Toodle pep. Unmade. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.